You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. All right, all right. Good morning, East Point Church. What's going on? How are you guys? Yeah, you guys look in it to win it. I love it. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. This is the highlight of our week. Open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're continuing in our series called Unfinished. And so we are in the book of Philippians. Uh, If you do not have or own a Bible, we have some blue and white ones in the back. You can grab those. Uh, We are on page 980, uh, and that's our gift to you. You can take that and, uh, and read it. It'll change your life. And so as you guys go ahead and open up your Bibles, I'm just curious if there's anybody here who shares my affinity for baking. Any, can we show, show of hands? How many, how many bake, bake experts, aficionados? Clearly, I don't know how this works, so I'm ousting myself. Yes, I do love baking, but when I say I love baking, friends, I don't mean I actually like making the baking. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, there are people who bake, and then there are people who eat baked goods. How many in the former? How many people bake? No, come on. Like, honestly, you bake things? Like, you put them in the oven and they're edible? Okay. And then how many are like me? You loved eating the baked goods? Woo! My people! My people. And so we're cooking up a little bit something-something here. I'm going to tell you a thing or two about baking, all right? I'm going to tell you a thing or two about baking because I only know a thing or two. And so I'll tell you what I do know. I know that when you put a bunch of things in a bowl and mix them up, they come out magical. It's just, it's like magic, literally the magic box, I call it in my house. Just, can you like mix all the ingredients in the bowl and put it in the oven and give me cookies? That's how it works. And so here's what I do know. I know that there are optional ingredients, and I know that there are key ingredients, and I know that you're not supposed to confuse those. For example, my friend Gabby didn't need to put chocolate chips in these muffins. Oh, maybe she did, but she did not need to put chocolate chips in these muffins to make them edible. That is an optional ingredient. That is an extra oomph on this muffin that makes it delicious. And so if she left them out, no harm, no foul. You don't have to put sprinkles. You don't have to put the whipped cream on top. You don't have to put the banana chips and the, and the green pistachio flake. You, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Those are optional ingredients. But then there are some ingredients that are key. There are some ingredients that if you don't put them in there, it doesn't matter how good these muffins look, one bite will cause you to spit it out and you'll be craving the real thing because you cannot confuse sugar and salt. (laughs) You cannot confuse baking powder with baking soda, okay? Those are key ingredients, friends. I don't care how good they look, it's only eye candy. If you do not have the required pieces in the bowl and then into the magic box, you need the key ingredients. And so I share this with you today because the Lord is cooking up something here at East Point Church. The Lord is cooking up something in the world. He is creating something. He has put things together, and it is called a family God is making a family. He's putting together a community of people from all different backgrounds, 
all different ethnicities, all different experiences. He's mixing people together who have a wide range of socioeconomic and education and just age experiences. And he's putting it together. But if this disparate group of people is going to come together, if this experiment, if what God is doing, if these group of people are going to gel as a legitimate family, if it's going to work, then they're going to need a key ingredient. You see, we here in this room, we can look the part, we can learn the lingo, we can smile and handshake, and we can do it all. We can learn the behaviors. But if we are lacking this key ingredient, people will come in, take one bite, and spit it out, and be craving the real thing. Friends, if this is going to work, we need the key ingredient. And today we find out what that is. You know what the key ingredient is? Check the nutrition labels on the back of your Bibles. You're like, what is the key ingredient? What is required for us to live as a family? What is required for us to run in unity? What is required for this family to be a family? It's a key ingredient, friends. It's the key ingredient. And we find out in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians today that the key ingredient is humility. The key ingredient is humility. Look what Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul's going to call us to unity here, but the first thing we see is that we can't run in unity without humility. We can't run in unity without humility. And so this is the second week in a row that Paul calls us to run in unity. We saw last week, right, that we are to have a shoulder-to-shoulder, side-by-side posture with our brothers and sisters, okay? And we are to run together. And as we run with our brothers and sisters, we're to be marked by a unity of the same mind. We are of one mind. We are headed in the same direction, same purpose, same goal. We're to be marked by a unity of love. We love the same thing. We are moved by the same things. And so as we run, we, we share in common this, this love to see the gospel spread to every corner of the world and faith birth. Everywhere the gospel seed is planted, faith blossoms. We love that. We're united by that love. In a few weeks, we'll be here on Easter Sunday, and we're going to see people go public with their faith, and there won't be a dry eye in the room because we are united by our love for that. We are united as we see people and their eyes open and they're birthing new faith, new life. So we're united in love. We're running side by side. It's like our arms are locked. We're together. We are in full accord. If this was a sport, we're on the same team. We're running in unity. Now, if you were here last week, you're going, wait a minute, this is the second week in a row that Paul is talking about unity. Come next week, spoiler alert, he's going to make it three weeks in a row. And then we're going to get to chapter four, 
And he's going to start calling people out by name and saying, get along. So if we're being careful readers here, what might we deduce about the people in Philippi? All right. They might have been struggling with unity. They were probably struggling with bad attitudes and conflict, disunity, getting along with one another. And so here's why I think that's important to note. Here's why I think that's a helpful observation. We realize that human conflict, that this, this interpersonal dynamic of not getting along, that has been happening with humans forever. And so we see the Philippians here. Yes, they were mature, and yes, they were, they were Christians, and, and Paul loved them. They were a loving people, and yet they even struggled with, with this. And so what that tells me is, when we experience this in our lives, when we experience this in our community, no need for concern. This is not a red flag. We go, yep, this is par for the course in a broken world. Just like a garden that when it's not tended to, it falls into chaos and disarray, I call it relational entropy. In the same way, when our, in a fallen world, our relationships naturally devolve into brokenness, disunity, and strife unless we have intentional care and attention. This is normal. This is what we are experiencing in a fallen world. And so that's why Paul is writing to them, and that's why we're hearing the message, yes, this is normal. This is human nature, but this is not how things should work in the kingdom of God. This is not how things work in this family. And so he calls them to unity. Maintain unity. And now, see, me, I'm, I'm the kind of person that's like, well, just do it. Just be united, you know. And Paul, he doesn't come here and say, be united, go get them, be better. He, he actually has some logic here, and it's really interesting. I want to show you. He grounds his commands to unity, and he grounds it in this appeal. And he begins by reminding us of all that we have in Jesus. So he goes, think of it like this, guys. Think about this. We have experienced encouragement in Christ. In our relationship with God, we have been built up and encouraged by God. We have experienced in our relationship with God comfort from his love. Man, there is tremendous consolation and comfort in the gospel for weary souls. We have experienced a participation in the Spirit. Friends, when you come to Christ, you are not forgiven at arm's length distance. I forgive you, now go get them. No, no, we are invited to participate in the family. There is an adoption, there is a nearness that is dripping with affection and sympathy. These are all things that we've experienced with God. And so Paul, he says, therefore, right, he says, if there is... If these are things that we are experiencing in our relationship with God, which they are, then they should permeate our attitudes toward each other. See where he's grounding his appeal? He goes, if these are things that we have received from God, which they are, then we should go and maintain unity. He doesn't just give a command. He gives us the logic behind it. We've experienced these things from God. Therefore, let us perpetuate relationships that are filled with encouragement and comfort and love and participation that are dripping with affection and sympathy. He says, complete my joy. Make my pastor heart happy and run in unity. And so his message is consistent. 
He's consistently clear. Be united. The family of God should be united. We as brothers and sisters should run together, arms locked in unity. But what we need to realize today, friends, is that unity is impossible without the key ingredient. It doesn't matter how many times Paul says it. It doesn't matter how many times you listen to this message, friends. We can't run in unity without humility. Look what he says. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I want you to run in unity. Therefore, if it's going to work, you can't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, you must treat others with humility. And so here are two attitudes, two postures contrasted side by side to help us see them clearly. And so number one is selfish ambition. This is when we operate with a drive for personal advancement and a, and a cutthroat willingness to do whatever it takes to get there. I am driven. I am ambitious. I'm going to get to the top spot, and I will have a cutthroat willingness to do whatever it takes. I don't care about those around me. I'm looking out for me. I'm the most important. That's why it's called conceit. I'm looking out for number one, your boy. It's all about me. What impact does that kind of person have on unity? Can, can anybody here honestly say, I love people like that. Man, I feel so united when people just, you know, kick me in the back and push me down the ladder so that way they can be on top. I love those kind of people. It's impossible, right? Like, if, if I don't trust you to do what's best for the whole, we're never going to be in unity. We're not in this together. I don't trust you. We're not pursuing the same ends. And so unity is destroyed because you're looking out for you. And if I'm also self-centered, then it's doubly impossible because you're pursuing your aims, I'm pursuing mine, and they're bringing us into conflict. You can't run in unity without humility. And so Paul says, do nothing. Nothing. Not compartmentalize your selfish ambition. Not set one day a week aside so you can have your... Let none of your actions, none of your thoughts, none of your interactions, let none of them be tainted by the number one conceited attitude, the, number, the lookout for number one posture. Instead, we're to have the opposite. We're to have humility. Here's what humility is. It is a sober and modest attitude about my own priority and importance. It's a sober it's a modest attitude about my own priority and importance. And because I don't see myself as the most important, I go, I'm going to view myself lower. Because I have a modest view of my importance, it allows me to count others as more important. When I'm operating in humility, it's easy for me to say, them first. They're more important. So when I was growing up, um, we used to have dinner as a family. My parents, they were pretty consistent with that. Growing up in New York City, my dad would be gone all day, you know, up at four in the morning, back at six o'clock at night. Just my dad was a super hard worker, driving tractor trailers all over the tri-state area, right? And he, he'll tell you, my nerves are shot just from traffic in Brooklyn. Like, that's, that's it. That did him in right there, you know, driving. And so we would do this thing where, you know, we're, we're, he's gone all day, but when he came home, it was time for family dinner. And so my dad, he'd come in, he'd sit down, and we're having a meal. And, and this is just the way it worked in my house. But dad would get served 
first. That's what we did. Dad was working hard for us, right? And so he was slaving away, providing for his family. And so my mom taught us his children, hey, dad goes first. After a day of hard work, if there was a ladder, right, of honor and priority, dad had the top position. It wasn't an arrogant power play. More often than not, my dad would say, no, no, here's some. He would always give. He would always serve, right? He would always do that. But we would defer to him. He gets the top rung of the importance and priority ladder. Now imagine if 12-year-old Sammy C. from New York stood up and he goes, you know what? I've had enough of this. And on Taco Tuesday, I challenge my dad and I say, I'm more important than you. I think that I deserve a higher rung on the ladder because I think I'm more important. I think I should be regarded as a higher priority. Yeah, I can see your cringing faces right now, right? You're like, oh, rest in peace, little Sammy C., you know? (laughs) That would be ignorant. That would be the opposite of humility, right? That would be me having too high a view of my own importance. It'd be cringy. And so here's the point why I share this with you. The deference that we showed my dad, the way that we treated him as higher up the priority and the honor ladder, that's how we're supposed to treat everyone around us. We're supposed to treat everyone as if they are a rung or two higher on the priority and the importance ladder. We live with the humility, right, this mentality, an understanding of ourselves that says, hey, they're more important than me. So I defer. Take care of them first, right? They're higher up the ladder. Serve them. Serve them. And so we we talk about ladder because we get that, right? We're a corporate business world, Western civilization. We we get the ladder. In, In Jesus' culture, when he was here on earth, they didn't have a ladder. You know what they had? They didn't have a ladder of honor and priority. They had a table of honor and priority. And so they didn't climb the ladder. They tried to move toward the head of the table. And so if you got invited to a dinner party in Israel and you didn't understand what was happening, you may be a little bit embarrassed because you don't just sit anywhere, friends. This is not alphabetical order. This is not assigned seating. Where you sat was your statement of saying, this is how important I am. And so the less important people sat on that end all the way up to the most important person at the head of the table. And so they would come in, and they were trying to, you know, size themselves up. I'm definitely more important than that guy, and that guy, not even a chance, you know. And they would go, I think I'm sitting here. I'm this important. And Jesus comes in 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 Luke 14, and he says, when you walk into the room, be humble. When you walk into the room, assume that you're less important than everyone else. He goes, it's way better to be told, no, 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 sister, you sit higher up here. You're actually more important than that. That's way better than to be told, oof, you aimed a little bit too high, chief. I need you to slide down three chairs. Embarrassing, right? Jesus says, be humble. Have humility. View yourself modestly with a sober mind and just assume a lower rung. Assume a lower seat. Treat everyone around you as if they are more important. And if we do that, all mutually deferring to others, not self-centered, self-revolving, self-important, but others-focused, we will be running in unity. But we can't run in unity 
without humility. Do you want to be a part of that kind of community where we serve one another instead of competing with one another? Do you want to be a part of that kind of family, right? Would not a family work like that? Man, not only will it work, it has to work. It's the only way it will work. And so Paul is clear. Run in unity. Run in unity, and you're going to need humility. And so we have the command. We have the call to humility. And now as we move on, Paul's going to give us something even more than a command. He gave us the call to humility, and now he's going to give us the example of humility. Look what he says here. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's the call again. Have this mind among yourselves. Church, be humble. Think and operate with this mentality toward those around you. This should be the prevailing operating system of the church. But notice, it's not just the call. It's the example, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you have any questions about what humility looks like, if you have any wonderings about what this means in real time, Paul shows us that this mentality was embodied. It was illustrated in real time with a flesh and blood example. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He had this mentality. So when we say, be humble, what we're actually saying is be like Jesus. When we say be humble, what we mean is be like him. Friends, to embrace humility is to live like Jesus. To embrace humility is to be like Jesus. It's to live like him. And friends, that is the goal. That's the goal. There's the secret recipe, right? When we say that we want to grow in faith, we're not talking about self-improvement and we want to become the best versions of ourselves. No, we want to become like the version of Jesus. Christianity is not about the collection of moral virtues. It's about being transformed into the image of Jesus, who was the perfect human being, and he perfectly shows us what humanity was designed to look like. That's how God made humanity. Adam, but Adam fell, and so the second Adam, the perfect Adam is here. And where Adam failed, Jesus excelled in perfection, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not just saying, be humble, have integrity, have grit, have empathy, have perseverance. No, this is not about virtues. We pursue those virtues in increasing measure because at the end of the day, what we want more than anything is to become like Jesus. And friends, you will not find a more humble human being on the planet. You will not find a more humble person in the universe. Jesus was humble. Think about this. He was equal with God the Father, existing for all of eternity, a full member of the Trinity. He had the top spot in the galaxy, 
And yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to his divine position. He wasn't holding on for dear life. He willingly emptied himself. That's how humble he is. Let's go back to our ladder metaphor, all right? The top spot, the most important being, the top position of honor and priority is Jesus. He was in the form of God. And yet, he will lower himself down the ladder. He willingly descends the ladder. How many rungs? How many rungs is Jesus going to go down? How many rungs before we have to see how humble he is? Well, he was in the form of God, and yet it says in the text that he put on the form of flesh. He steps down and becomes a human. The creator of the universe put on flesh to experience what we experience on planet Earth. That should be like seven rungs down, right? He steps down. Okay, so he steps down, but you can live a pretty nice life as a human, right? Maybe he stepped from the throne room into a mansion, right? No, 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 not just a cushy human life, but the life of a servant. We marvel every year at Christmas time that the creator of the universe is lying in a manger to a poor, destitute family. What? Okay, well, being a servant is not all that bad. You can live a nice, long servant life, have a family, and you know. No, no, no. Not just a servant, but from day one, he came to die. He knew from the beginning, I'm going to lay down my life for the world. And guys, not just like a a noble death. He's not going to pass away. He's going to die a violent, disgraceful death surrounded by two criminals on a Roman cross. That's humility. Lowering himself because he's treating others, namely you and me, as more important. And he, our servant savior, is saying them first. I'm putting their needs above my own position of glory. That's humility that led him to climb down that ladder. It's humility that caused him to say his mission statement. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. How much better is Jesus than us? (laughs) Do we need any further proof that Jesus is in a different league of glory (laughs) to which every single one of us in this room falls short? This is not the way the world works, right? In our world, the higher you get up the ladder, the more perks you get, the more privileges you get, you claw and you climb so that you can take advantage of the top spot. You start to become convinced of your own importance. You believe you deserve to be prioritized. You earned this top spot. That's the way the world works. And yet we're confronted with the beauty of Jesus, who not only did he have the top spot. He invented everyone else. He created us, and he willingly steps down. You know when you're like in a dark room, and then a light comes on? You know how your eyes just instinctively look to the light? 
That's what this is like. We are surrounded in a dark world of power politics and people seeking perks, and they're just and then they're filled with self-importance and self-centeredness and selfishness. And Jesus shows up on the scene and like light in the darkness. We just we can't help but look. It's beautiful. This is so different than anything that we see in our world. It is attractive, and so we marvel at Jesus. We marvel at his humility. We adore the beauty of what he did here. But here's the message today. Don't just marvel at Jesus. Don't just admire his humility. The text is calling us, run after him. East Point Church, go and do likewise. See where he is leading you. Hear him calling you as his disciples. And as you follow him, follow him on the path of humility. Follow Jesus on the path of humility. We're following the leader. The leader. The leader. We're following the leader wherever he may go. And we see as he's carrying his cross, descending the ladder, we see that the path he's taking is called humility way. And we're following him that way. Follow Jesus on the path of humility. And so we have this call to humility. We then see an example of humility. And now in our last three verses, we see the reward, the outcome of humility. Look what it says, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we saw how Jesus descended, right? He willingly, in love and humility, he lowered himself. Therefore, as a result of his humble descent, we now see that God has highly exalted him. Do you see that? He humbly descended, and now God ascended him. Friends, we are learning a kingdom principle here, okay? We're learning a law of the kingdom of God. And so you guys know what laws are, right? I'm not talking about like, like cops and law. I'm talking about the law of physics. Any physics majors here? I do physics in between my baking. I'm really good at it. And so, come on, you guys know physics, right? The law of gravity. What goes up? Oh, you do dabble. Okay, let's do the next one. You know this, the law of thermodynamic states. <laughs> you guys were so in it, too. You're like, ah. The law of motion, the, the law of thermodynamics, conservation of energy, all these things. Just like there are laws in the physical universe, there are laws in the spiritual universe. There are laws in the kingdom of God. And what we see happening here in this passage is one of those laws, one of those irrevocable, irreversible principles, and it is called the law of reversal. It's kind of like the law of gravity, but it's actually the opposite. Here's what the law of reversal states, okay? Sir Isaac Newton, PhD in the Bible, would say it this way. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And so let's go back to the ladder. Who's at the top of God's ladder of honor, recognition, and priority? 
Who's the most important? Who are the greatest among us in God's eyes? Friends, it is those who willingly serve others, who treat others as deserving of higher honor. And they, regardless of their earthly status, they defer. They climb lower and lower and lower. It's the servants. But here's where the law of reversal comes in. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those who descended are at the top. And what happened to those, friends? What happened to those among us who were climbing, right? And in our selfish ambition, we're climbing higher and higher, and we have this cutthroat tenacity, and we're kicking people down, and we're prioritizing ourselves. and in conceit, we're saying, I'm number one. And we climb, and we climb, and we claw, and we get to the top, and we find ourselves at the bottom. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. On the flip side, those who descended, one rung at a time, willingly inconveniencing themselves for those around them, willingly serving others, willingly ignoring their own perks and privileges of their powerful positions. Say that four times fast, right? Those who are willingly serving others and saying, you first, those people learned our final point, that in God's kingdom, we descend to the top. In God's kingdom, we descend to the top. It's a law, an irreversible, irrevocable principle in the kingdom of God, and Jesus is our perfect example. He's the case in point. Jesus is proof positive that this works because he who descended to the lowest possible position of servant, he has now been raised up to the highest possible position in God's kingdom. The king. He's the king. He has been elevated from the cross to a throne. He's been given a title that is the highest in the land, not by his own selfish ambition. No, no, friends, his exaltation is at the hand of God. God has highly exalted him. Think about that. God has highly exalted him. God, the universe, right? He created the universe. God owns everything. The Father, there is not a square inch, there is not a single molecule in the galaxy that God does not say, mine. He owns it all. And what we see in the Bible is that the Father, he steps aside and he places the Son as his vice regent. He places the Son as the king and he says, you rule and reign over my creation. You you rule and reign and bring in an era of prosperity and peace and righteousness and justice and equity. You rule King Jesus. And he has the highest title in the land. When I was in college, I went to West Point for three days. It was a conference. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so I went there for three days for a conference, and there's a very big difference between civilian college students and military college students, okay? And so we'd be walking down just the path, playing frisbee on the quad, and out of nowhere, these 22, 21, 18-year-old kids out of nowhere would just stop and hoot! happening, right? 
having a fit, you know, like letting the Frisbee fly by, and they just salute, and I'm like, what's going on? And they say, hey, whenever a higher-ranking official walks by, you halt, you stop whatever you're doing, and you salute them because their position is higher than yours, and therefore you treat them as more important. You defer, you honor, you salute. So I got my salute on. You know, I was saluting everybody because everybody was higher than me. I was in the cafeteria, and I was like, what's up, private? You know, I was just having fun with this thing. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying Jesus' title, his position is so high that he doesn't even have to walk by. Just at the mention of his name, just at the mere breath and allusion to his title, the entire universe will halt. And they will not only salute, but they will bow in submission, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every tongue will not be able to help but exclaim, you are great, and I pledge allegiance to the king. He is so high, the name above every name. He is King Jesus. And so we praise him, friends. We recognize his supremacy as the king, yes, but we don't forget how he got there. He descended to the top. And so we praise King Jesus, but we also follow Jesus on the path of humility. He descended to his position, and we, his disciples, we follow him. We follow him. Be humble. Be humble. Have this mind, what we just talked about, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, being born in the likeness of men, becoming obedient even to the point of death. Follow Jesus, friends. Live like Jesus as you follow him on the path of humility. And here's how I'd like us to respond today. All right, we always respond through singing, but every once in a while, about once a month, we get to respond by taking communion. And here's how I'd like us to do communion today, okay? We're talking about humility. We're talking about how Jesus exemplified what it looks like to step down. And here we have the proof of what he did. And so here's what we're going to do. I don't partake yet, but I want you to open up your bread I want you to hold your juice. If you're a Christian, if you're in the family of God, this is a family meal. And so you are welcome. You don't have to be a member at our church. You just have to be a part of God's family. If you're not there yet, if you're still on your journey figuring out who Jesus is, you're welcome to just sit and pray with us. That's okay. This is a family meal. So no pressure. We can talk more about that if you're interested in learning more about Jesus and the gospel and all this. But this is a family meal we're going to take together as Christians. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to hold the emblems. And we're going to reflect, how far did God step down to save me? How far did God step down to save me? And I want us to reflect on his sacrifice. And as we sing this, you'll sit there, as, we, as Rob and the team sings this song, reflect on those words, and then I'll come up and we'll partake together. So let's think about this. Follow Jesus on the path of humility.
Thank you, Lord. Father, we know that your love, that your humility led you, Father, down from heaven to live on this earth, to die a disgraceful death, Father, so that you could save a people who were not naturally selfless. Lord, those of us who are are bent is for selfish ambition and self-centeredness and self-importance. Lord, you have saved us, and we are so grateful. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you, Lord, for setting out to change us, to transform our hearts, Lord, from one degree of glory to another. As we reflect on your humility, change us into your likeness today. Even this week, Lord, I pray that we would see fruit, that this week, that the example of your broken body and your spilled blood would move us to greater levels of humility so that you may be honored, so that the image of Jesus in us would be seen. We love you, Father. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.